If a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, how would she celebrate and support the arts, music, and her community? What would Arwen do? Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Tuduvio, on KUCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at KUCI.org. Ellen Salalumin Amentielva. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV, a lot of different shows, Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, Montel, and actually last year she had her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Murray. Good evening, Lloyd. Now, you must remember when we had James Pyle on, oh, I guess it was about a year or a year and a half ago. It's been a while, yeah. It's been a while, and he was absolutely terrific and talked to us about healthcare privacy, and he has been doing so much more. We wanted to catch up on what is happening because this is a huge issue right now in Congress. So let me tell the audience if they haven't heard, if they didn't hear our previous interview, they sure want to know a little bit about this great guest. Jim is talking to us all the way from the East Coast where they've been having crummy weather, to say the least, and uh, we're just appreciative that he's joining us late this evening. Jim has practiced uh, healthcare law for about 35 years, both with the federal government and in private practice. Uh, Jim Piles represents hospitals, physicians, psychotherapists, home health agencies, hospices, and companies providing durable medical equipment and infusion therapy in virtually every state and the District of Columbia, where he lives right nearby there. Um, in representing his clients, Mr. Piles has developed expertise in numerous numerous health law subject areas, including the right to medical privacy, which is really what we're going to be focusing on. But he does other things like private communications as well and other constitutional issues. He is also a registered lobbyist, so he goes to Congress quite a bit on behalf of uh, consumers and health care agencies to protect privacy. And he's participated directly in issues relating to national health care and with the focus on medical privacy. He has appeared on most of the major television networks, and he also has appeared on NPR and other radio shows, so we're thrilled that he's joining us here at the University of California. He's had numerous articles published in major health care journals, and he serves as privacy counsel for the American Psychoanalytic Association, and he was lead counsel in Citizens for Health versus Levitt, and that that challenged the validity of the HIPAA health information privacy rule that, you know, we get those HIPAA disclosures all the time when we go to the doctor. And um, actually, when we talked to him last time, he was waiting for the result of what was going uh, to be the the, uh, ruling by the United States Court of Appeals. So we're going to talk about that. And he is presently uh, working on legislation and recently just testified again in Congress to uh, promote some legislation that would protect our privacy. So thank you for joining us, Jim. I'm glad to be with you. Well, so... Can you tell us, I know it wasn't a great result, I know there was some disappointment. Tell us briefly what the Citizens for Health versus Levitt was and what happened in the United States Court of Appeals for the 3rd District. Yeah, it's the uh, 3rd Circuit. We brought third that circuit, suit, I meant, uh, sorry, yeah. In, in the 3rd Circuit in Philadelphia because 
Um, and, and we made this point with, with uh, some of the uh, interviews there with the local newspapers. We said the right to privacy was born in Philadelphia, and it was either going to be extended there or it would die there. <laughs> and we hope, it, we hope it doesn't die. But uh, we had kind of a half a loaf, I guess, with the um, uh, Court of Appeals. The, uh, when we argued the case, all three judges on the panel seemed to be very favorably disposed to our position. Uh, they asked us to do post-hearing briefs and uh, posed additional questions for counsel for, uh, for the government and for us. And um, We, uh, again, thought uh, most, of the, uh, most of those questions went to the question of what happens if we strike down uh, the rule as unconstitutional, so we were feeling pretty good about it. Uh, the court, uh, actually, though, in its final decision, said uh, yes. There's no doubt that the privacy, the health privacy of the plaintiffs, and there were over 650,000 of them in that case, no doubt that their privacy, uh, health privacy, is being violated. It is being violated by these uh, covered entities, which are using the um, new, the amended privacy rule that was adopted by the Department of Health and Human Services in August of 2002. And uh, these entities were using uh, that rule to um, deprive folks of their uh, medical privacy uh, over their, without their consent and over their objection. Um, and, uh, but the court said that uh, because the um, privacy violations were occurring at the hands of private entities, that did not violate the Constitution, the constitutional mm -hmm. right to privacy, because the Constitution protects citizens against acts by the government and not by uh, not against acts by private entities. Right. And um, <clears throat> of course, we had uh, shown that since the uh, civil rights cases beginning in 1953, going through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, that the Supreme Court had often uh, found state involvement or state action sufficient to support a constitutional claim when someone was simply exercising authority given to them by the federal or state government. And um, uh, we, we don't know uh, really how the, what the court's internal reasoning was, but it was odd that they decided um, in our favor on, on all the factual issues and on the allegations but then decided against this on the state action issue because no one during the uh, briefing of the case raised that issue. And the court did not raise it in the additional issues that they asked us to brief after the oral argument. And, and, and no one raised it in oral argument. If somebody <laughs> came up without either side being able to brief it, without either side knowing it was an issue in the case, it was something they just dreamed up and uh, decided the case on. So That sounds political. It was very bizarre. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Um, and uh, we did uh, seek uh, a, we filed a petition for certiorari at the, to the U.S. Supreme Court right. on the grounds that by failing to acknowledge state involvement as they had in throughout history in the civil rights cases and many other cases, that the decision was in conflict with those decisions. But... This Supreme Court is uh, is a much more conservative Supreme Court panel than we've had in the past, and um, as Justice Scalia said, uh, they often don't take cases nowadays that uh, are clearly wrong, clearly <laughs> have been decided in a, on a clearly wrong basis. So um, they did say, we, we, we brought up uh, an additional issue, uh, or not an additional issue, but an additional point, and that is that uh, the... Department of Health and Human Services is, in fact, a covered entity because uh, covered entities are those that uh, are, are, are health plans, includes health plans. And, of course, um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, runs and administers the Medicare, the Medicaid programs, and the Indian Health Service programs, and all three of those are health plans. Exactly. So we mm -hmm. pointed out that the that the secretary's rule had essentially conferred broad authority to violate people's privacy on the secretary himself. <laughs> and yep. um, um, the court dropped a, handled that in a footnote and said, well, yes, that's true, they are, but uh, we don't see any notices uh, of, in the notices that were actually filed in the case. We don't see any notices from the federal government. So it's it remains to be for another case to be brought if someone would want to bring it um either that or get 
get some legislation to help or get you. legislation. I mean, our, our goal all along was to get privacy, uh, the right to privacy recognized in federal law, whether it's federal common law uh, or in federal statutory law. And it looks like now with uh, the uh, change in leadership in Congress, we, we are much closer to getting uh, the right to privacy recognized and protected in federal statutory law. Right. Let's go back, and I remember we talked about this a year and a half ago, but I'm not sure who was listening to us then, if they're the same people. Let's go back to what you were saying about the original HIPAA rule back, I think, what, in 2000, what was that? that before, in the it Clinton was put into effect by the Bush administration on, in 2001, April 14, 2001. Right, but under the Clinton administration, um, the rules uh, for privacy were a little different, right? And then they changed under the Bush administration. Can you explain that and kind of go what happened and how we lost some of our privacy rights with that? Sure. The uh, um, original uh, HIPAA statute it was uh, enacted in 1996. And it had a uh, provision in it that said that uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services should issue recommendations to Congress uh, with respect to the privacy rights that people should have under an electronic information system. And Secretary Shalala, who was the Secretary of HHS under Clinton, did that. And uh, um, the, the statute also said that if Congress didn't act on those recommendations within three years, then the Secretary could issue regulations setting forth the privacy rights that people should have. So Congress, didn't, in fact, did not act within three years. So Secretary Shalala uh, issued a, a proposed rule and then fi- and a uh, final um, privacy rule on um, December the 28th, 2000. Uh, that was right at the end of the Clinton administration. It was in the last days of the Clinton administration. Right. And uh, when the Bush administration came in in January 2001, uh, they put a, a, a moratorium, a hold, on all regulations that had not actually gone into effect. The Clinton um, um, regulation uh, issued in December had said that it would go into effect towards the end of February 2001. So the Bush administration put a hold uh, on the regulation. Um, we uh, did some research and found that uh, there's a lot of case law that says that that when... Congress issues a deadline and a statute and an agency fails to meet it, they've got to put whatever they've got in place. They've got to, they've, they've got to go ahead and put it into effect. So we put together a lawsuit to compel the Bush administration to put the original privacy rule into effect because uh, by that time they had um, gone past the uh, statutory deadline issued by Congress, set by Congress in HIPAA. And, um, Could you so, explain to my audience what that original rule was so that they'll understand when it changed what it was? Sure. The original rule um, did a, uh, uh, it was one of the largest rulemakings ever in the history of HHS, and it, and it looked to see under what circumstances uh, someone's information should be used uh, with, their, with their permission or consent and without it. And so the original rule uh, found that uh, all, all hospitals, virtually all other uh, providers, including all practitioners, had always obtained consent for the uh, routine use and disclosure of information for the most common purposes, which were defined in the rule as treatment, payment, and then a, a third category called health care operations, and that was things for doing uh, internal re, uh, uh, quality assurance reviews and and internal business purposes. So um, the the rule as developed under the Clinton administration and issued at the end of that administration said that uh, patient consent would continue to be required for these three broad routine purposes, treatment, payment, or healthcare operations. And they define treatment, payment, and healthcare operations very broadly in order to confer broad privacy protections. Right. Uh, when the um, when the Bush administration then came in, they initially tried to uphold, you know, hold up the rule. We sued them and then leaked the fact that we were going to sue them to the New York Times. The New York Times ran a a front page story saying we were getting ready to compel them to put it into play, put the rule into place. And three days later, they announced great victory for American consumers. They were putting the rule into effect. 
Uh, <laughs> apparently their lawyers read the same case law as we did. Right. And uh, so they put it into, so the Bush administration actually put the Clinton rule into effect on April 14, 2001, but it had a two-year delayed implementation date. Covered entities that were covered by the rule had two years to come into compliance. So in March of uh, 2002, um, the, the new secretary, Tommy Thompson, uh, the new secretary of HHS, um, reopened the rulemaking. Uh, it had been, again, by that, before that time, it had been one of the biggest ones in the history of the country. But he reopened the rulemaking, proposed to, to eliminate the patient's right of consent for routine disclosures, but, but went beyond that and, and, and said that they were going to um, um, uh, confer federal regulatory permission on all covered entities to give them a right to use and disclose the information for treatment payment and health care operations. So, and that was despite a uh, uh, tremendous outcry by the public and lots of comments by the consumers, in, on August the 14th of 2002, the, issue, the Bush administration issued a final rule that eliminated the right of consent and inserted this new federal regulatory permission to use um, health information for routine purposes without consent and even over the patient's objection. So, and, and let's talk about that for a second because I think when, when, when we all go to the doctor or the dentist or any health care provider, we look at these privacy notices and most people don't read it, but they think when they sign it, they're they're going to be assured of their rights to privacy. Because exactly I wrong. ask people all the time. I know, I know, but I'm saying this is what a lot of people think sure. when they're signing that. And I know that that's not the case. It's a disclosure that they're making. It is not a promise to protect privacy. It's just disclosing that you don't have any privacy. Well, it really is meaningless. It, yes. it discloses what they're going to use. It discloses that they're going to... Um, release your information without your consent for treatment payment and health care operations and for 12 other special purposes as well. And, and it says, uh, as they're required to do under the rule, that you have a right to request restrictions. Uh, that is, and that's the way you would, the, the government says you, or HHS says you could request a consent process, but then it also says that uh, the, the entity has a right to deny the request for any reason or no reason, and they all do. They always re- always deny yes. the request for restrictions because they're under no no incentive or compulsion to, to grant it. So so the notice you get is really worthless because if you, if you sign it, that's fine. If you don't sign it, that's fine. It doesn't make any difference to uh, with respect to your privacy rights. Uh, they're just simply telling you they're they're going to disclose it as permitted under federal law, and if and if you sign that you've received the notice, then they they acknowledge that. But if you don't sign it, they still do it. Right. There's nothing really that that, they, that process, the getting of the notice and the opportunity to sign, has no real legal significance with respect to your right to privacy under federal law. All right. It just tells you that you really don't have any privacy. <laughs> well, it does. And, and if, you, if you look at what the rule did, what the uh, Bush administration did to the rule when they amended it, they essentially ripped it inside out because the, the rule initially uh, uh, required patient consent for disclosure for treatment, payment, and health care operations, all very broadly defined. The uh, amendment uh, eliminated the right of consent, granted a new right to covered entities to use your information for treatment, payment, or health care operations, then the broad definitions, those very broad definitions, then work against privacy rather than in favor of privacy. So now these covered entities have uh, federal uh, regulatory permission to disclose your information without your consent for those three now very, still very broadly defined purposes. It was really ingenious by changing a single component of the rule, they essentially turned it inside out. It's now not a privacy rule, it's a disclosure rule. Yes, and you know, Jim, what has really happened in the real world that I've gotten people complaining about is that when there's a family member that does want to call in to the hospital and find out the room number, they just found out that their their loved one was in the hospital, they won't give it to them. You know, so there, it's working against you when you really do have family members if there wasn't any 
quote, quote, prior consent, there are a lot of hospitals and healthcare agencies that are actually working against that and, and not allowing families. Like they're making it, you know, easy for everybody else to get this healthcare information, but you can't even get a hold of your family member. Well, the, well there are two problems going on there. Number one is they got, they, they got the rule wrong in two respects. They allowed disclosures uh, for routine purposes that most people would want to not see made without their permission. Right. Uh, and they prohibited disclosures in some fairly small and discreet areas where people probably would want the information. <laughs> I know. So they got it wrong in, in, in both ways. Um, and uh, it's um, um, it, the other thing that, that's happening there is that uh, the, the rule also says, the statute says, and the rule follows suit, and says that uh, the rule does not preempt state laws that are more privacy protective, and it doesn't uh, override uh, standards of medical ethics. So now what we have in this country is we, we have a federal rule that authorizes hundreds of thousands of entities to use and disclosure information without your consent, but we have state laws uh, prohibiting it, and we have standards of medical ethics which since prior to the founding of the country, have required patient consent for the disclosure of information. Right. Yeah, so, just, just like our attorney-client privilege, we have the medical privilege, right? Well, that's exactly right. And the, the, uh, the, the practitioners, then, are put in the impossible position of they are supposed to say, state in that notice of privacy practices, they are supposed to tell individuals what their privacy rights are. And they're supposed to do it in plain language. But when you have federal law going in one direction and state law and medical ethics going in the opposite direction, there is no way anyone could issue a privacy notice that could possibly be understandable or accurate. Because not only does um, the HIPAA rule not override state statutory law, privacy law, it doesn't override state common law. So... It is the the amendment made by the Bush administration in August of 2002 has just created a huge muddle. I mean, there's no way for practitioners or, or patients now to know what privacy rights the patients really have. Right. It's very incongruent. <laughs> well, it, it's, a, it's a huge problem. And, and the throughout the history of the country, and even prior to the history of the country, throughout the history of England or the history of France, uh, even back to the uh, to the fifth century B.C. and uh, at the time of Hippocrates, we had a very simple privacy rule, and that was no uh, practitioner would disclose your information without your permission. Exactly. Period. Mm-hmm. That was the rule. Right. Very simple to understand. Ninety-five percent of the people in this country think that's what they're entitled to. It's what they want. But we have the federal government now, at least in as of August of 2002, um, issuing a rule that uh, runs exactly counter to that. So that's one horrible issue going on, which is which is a huge issue. And then now it kind of brings us up to date when we think about Katrina and we think about storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and things that can destroy. Uh, our medical information and and people have a problem getting information so that they can get their prescriptions or something. The the, the idea now is to have um, electronic records that are held by everybody and anybody, right? And and we hear a lot of benefits about, you know, health information technology. Um, Let's talk about the threat to health information privacy when we're trying to help people when they've been in a disaster. Well, uh, let's back up and, and look at it a little more generally first, and, and I'd like to get to that first. Uh, I uh, have done, had to do a lot of educating on Capitol Hill and Congress on the question of, does health information technology uh, pose a threat to the right to privacy? Uh, as of a year ago, most members of Congress thought it did not. Today, most believe it does. And they've become convinced, I think, of, of three points that I make. Number one is that uh, electronic um, information systems or electronic health information systems allow for the breach of all of your medical records, not just one uh, test uh, result, not just one uh, doctor visit or visit to a certain practitioner, but the whole thing. Yes. First time in history that, that I mean, your your entire medical record can go out. Number two, 
and, and it's in you know and it's in such a compact you know it's not like in the old days where you'd have a big paper file right exactly. and now like you've there, got there were 26. You, know, meg, you know how many megabytes <laughs> you know? well there were 26.6 million veterans uh, records yes. stolen from the VA right now if they had if someone had stolen that number of records paper records they would not have been hard to track you could have find, found the person driving <laughs> right the trucks the would have been going right right exactly <laughs> but it all fit on a laptop and a couple of discs exactly. uh, that were stolen out of someone's car uh, but the second thing that, that electronic information systems permit is they permit the, the violation of your privacy to millions of people literally around the world. Yes. Uh, so, Transferring uh, in a nanosecond, right? It, it, yes, and, and, and it, they're out there, and, and who knows where it went. And the third thing that, that folks on the Hill are now just beginning to understand is that when your health privacy is violated electronically, you cannot get it back. It's out there permanently. Yes. That information will circulate through the Ethernet forever. It, you will never, ever get that back. You can go retrieve a paper record. You can go burn it or destroy it or whatever. You cannot get electronic information back once it's out there. So, And it can be corrupted. I mean, that's another thing. You think about it. That can be corrupted. It could be... Well, know. one of the things that's happened more recently, and again, this is a, a particularly disturbing uh, facet of electronic information systems, and that is it's now now what we're finding is there are folks out there who are, who are stealing um, health information, identifying uh, information, uh, from other people. There is sort of medical identity theft. It is. Where they steal your insurance information, and then people go and they get health care and file claims on your insurance policy. Exactly. So, I mean, so we've, we've talked to people. So your record gets yes. all corrupted by their health information. Exactly. And yes. that's almost, that was completely unexpected by the the vendors and by the folks who were promoting mm -hmm. health IT. And that's a huge problem because it's very difficult then for a patient to go uh, to go through all that uh, record and, Correct and try it. to untangle yeah. it and to make sure it's untangled permanently because it could just get you know how who knows how many times your your medical identity has been sold and to whom and yeah and and I have a, a woman right here in Orange County who I've been dealing with which it wasn't medical identity theft but it was two names and there was a mixture of it and it got proliferated over and over and over again and it literally um, was bad enough to to because there were some issues of drug abuse etc that weren't hers right. that were really uh, interfering with her being able to get certain uh, jobs etc okay sure. I, I don't want to go too far into it but there was some horrible issues about that that are not hers and when they're you know copied and sent and transferred and shared how do you get it back to even correct it well one of the things that, that is particularly disturbing about the the HIPAA uh, privacy rule is uh, because it allows uh, your information to be used for this treatment payment and healthcare operations without your consent you also don't get notice of those uses and you don't have a right to an accounting so when your privacy is violated uh, these days because of this new federal rule there is no way there, there is no electronic trail you can't track it you can't figure out who has your information what do they have and why so this rule has actually promoted and facilitated identity theft rather and, and medical identity theft rather than uh, reducing it but getting back to your Katrina question, I, I hear well, this a lot. Yeah, yeah, and we can come back to that. But I want to I want to go further on what you were just saying because I think sure. that's so important. Because we've been hearing about literally millions and millions of people who've been affected by security breaches. So recently, we've heard about John Hopkins, and of course, like the VA, like you brought up, at George Mason, and UCLA. other university hospitals, right, okay. all over the place where this information is accessed and acquired by unauthorized persons. And like you said, it can be used for identity theft. They might not even get you know, corrupt the healthcare, but they can get that information and then steal your identity for financial, you know, services or to get a job or many other purposes. So, sure. so the yeah, whole it's I, the, the yeah. thing again that I think the folks on the Hill are finally beginning to understand 
is that you cannot make these systems secure. And, and if you, uh, the, the president put together a, um, a cybersecurity panel um, that issued a report to him on February 23, 2005, and folks, not too many folks uh, paid attention to what the conclusions were, but they were really disturbing. And these were, these were the, the top people in the information technology industry. Their conclusions were, number one, that um, the, that the uh, uh, country's uh, electronic information systems generally, not just health, but, but electronic information systems generally, were highly vulnerable to intrusion. And number two, that those vulnerabilities were increasing by 20% annually. And number three, you can't fix it. Because the whole base of our uh, electronic information system was built upon open access. It was, it was designed to promote the expansion and dissemination of information. It was never designed to keep it private. So now these companies are trying very hard to patch the system with one patch after another, and they're always just one patch behind the hackers. Yeah, it's like it's like trying to put your fingers in holes in the Titanic, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and one further point about the uh, the threat of health information technology to uh, health privacy is that not only can your information be disclosed with a punch of a button to millions of people around the world, but people, millions of people around the world, can gain access to your information. It used to be with a paper record. If someone was going to steal it. They had to get into the doctor's office, you know, during the Nixon era. You know, they had to, they, uh, Break in. the burglars broke into Ellsberg's uh, psych- psychotherapist's office and stole his records. They wouldn't have to use a crowbar today. They just use a, they use a computer. And, and they can be in the Netherlands. They can be in Spain. They can be in Iraq. Russia. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, they, they don't have to be there to do it. Exactly. You've been listening to James Piles, who is an attorney with Powers, Piles, Sutter, and Reveal in Washington, D.C. He is not only a expert on healthcare privacy, but he is also a lobbyist, and he is really a proponent of privacy, trying to help us as consumers to protect our healthcare privacy. You know, you had sent me uh, the GAO report, and, and that's really important. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what their findings were. By the way, the GAO is the Government Accounting Office, and could you tell my audience a little bit what they what they do? I mean, they have wonderful uh, investigations and, you know, uh, yeah, reports. Yeah, the Government Accountability Office, they were formed in 1947 by Congress to uh, do research for Congress, and um, they uh, get questions and requests from members of Congress, usually the heads of the um, or the chairs of, of various committees, to to do research on various uh, issues and report back to Congress. And the one that they, they they've issued a whole series of reports on uh, the on, on health information technology and and how well the federal agencies have been protecting the privacy of the information that they hold in their electronic information systems. And, and they've been finding for at least the, fa- the last five years uh, that, that this administration just simply does not, is not committed to protecting the privacy of the information they handle. And uh, this latest report uh, they issued, they found that... Um, um, the Department of Health and Human Services is pushing hard to uh, fund and promote electronic information systems across the country and have those systems be interoperable, which means that they can the information in them can be accessed from anywhere in the country, but of course it also we know it could be anywhere on the globe. Um, and uh, the idea, the concept behind it is to somehow make um, uh, health, the health delivery system uh, higher quality and, and perhaps lower cost, but that's not likely to happen. But, but, but anyway, that, that's the, the, what they're trying, ostensibly what they're trying to do with it. But uh, the question that came from um, uh, two senators to GAO was, how well are they protecting the public's right to privacy? And the response back after some investigation by GAO was that <clears throat> this administration, just as they'd found in the past, is, is much farther along in implementing the, these electronic information systems than they are on protecting privacy. And, in fact, they haven't even settled on a set of privacy principles 
for an electronic health information system. And they recommended strongly that um, that no system, no electronic information, health information system be put in place without first uh, developing a strategy for uh, identifying privacy principles and making sure they were uh, in place. So it was a it was a major, uh, certainly a major uh, finding by the Government Accountability Office, and uh, there was a hearing on the report uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, the um, uh, chairman of the health, uh, well, actually, I think it was a, a different committee, I think it was a Homeland Security uh, Committee, but the, the chairman and ranking members of those committees uh, uh, had some very harsh questioning for HHS, and pointedly asked them, why are you not uh, devoting at least the same amount of attention to privacy as you are to dissemination of health information? And they, were, they really didn't have any good answers. The HHS uh, even refused to agree with uh, GAO's finding that they should establish milestones um, to make sure that, that they were implementing privacy protections as they went along. And um, this report also looked to see what other agencies were doing as well. And the, um, the Veterans Administration, which, of course, had the, one of the largest breaches in history. Had a couple they, breaches. They did, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then tried to stonewall the disclosure. Uh, right. Of, but uh, but the, uh, the administrator of the Veterans Administration agreed with the GAO findings that, yes, they, they needed to identify and adopt privacy principles. But HHS seems to be the, the only group in the federal government um, that, that does not get the message that privacy is, is important and essential for quality health care. So tell me, you know, I've seen other GAO reports. By the way, people can go and um, look up these reports by the government at gao.gov, and then they can search uh, in subject areas that they're interested, whether it's identity theft or medical privacy or whatever. Jim, you know, you're a lobbyist, and you're really well-connected with all of the workings of the craziness over there in, in Washington, D.C., when a GAO report comes out like this and pretty much condemns what the HHS is doing, I mean, they did it in a nice way, but they did it. What is the, and you had a hearing, so now what is the protocol? Is there new legislation pending, or what, what happens? Well, I think it added, uh, that GAO report, I think, added uh, evidence to a conclusion that Congress was already coming to, and that was that if we were ever going to have uh, going to have strong privacy protections, it was going to have to be in federal legislation enacted by Congress rather than in regulations uh, issued by um, the Department of Health and Human Services. And um, the uh, last year, um, uh, both uh, the House and the Senate passed health IT or health information technology uh, legislation, and neither bill had um, strong privacy protections in it. Both bills relied essentially on the HIPAA privacy rule, which we know now as a disclosure rule. And um, but uh, we, at the end of the uh, uh, Congress last year, right before the elections, uh, uh, we had uh, we had worked with a number of uh, members of Congress, including Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Pete Stark of California and uh, Lois Capps of California and, um, and Ms. Matsui from out there as well, to to uh, put together a an amendment to the House version of the uh, Health IT Bill that would have included privacy principles that we think are crucial. And uh, as when the final vote came on the House Health IT Bill. Uh, and an, an effort was made by the Democrats to offer this amendment, and virtually every Democrat in Congress supported the amendment, which would have included stronger privacy protections. Four or five Republicans crossed over and came with us, but we knew that many other Republicans agreed with our arguments and wanted to vote in favor of that amendment. But they, they held ranks uh, uh, at the, uh, the, the influence of their leadership, and uh, so the amendment was not approved. Uh, but then in November, when Congress flipped, both the House and the Senate went from uh, Republican leadership to Democratic leadership. Uh, then uh, the very people we had who were strong supporters of um, privacy protections in the last Congress now are in a leadership position. 
And this GAO report just gives them more ammunition. And uh, I've attended uh, meetings and sessions both in the House and the Senate since the new Congress has been in session. And, and I know that both, both houses are uh, drafting uh, federal legislation that would include much stronger um, privacy protections and, and protections that are much more consistent with the original privacy rule, which is to say that it would require uh, a patient's consent before their information is disclosed for most routine purposes. And we think that legislation is going to be introduced in the next uh, few weeks in both the House and the Senate. And it'll, we think there'll be different bills and different approaches, but the privacy principles that we've developed, we believe, will be in both bills. You know, it just it surprises me that it's been a Democratic issue, these privacy issues, and that there aren't more people like Bob Barr, you know, who used to be in Congress, who's a, a very strong uh, privacy proponent. And Well, I when, think many Republicans do support uh, the right to privacy. And um, the, the House bill last year not only would have adopted the HIPAA rule as the, the privacy standards for this new electronic information system, but also would have preempted the more privacy-protective state laws. And many conservative folks uh, kind of like the idea that you should keep the federal government small and let the state governments handle many of these issues. And I know I gave a presentation to a large group of Republican staffers, and uh, when I mentioned that this bill was going to preempt state privacy laws, uh, it, it did not; they, it was not well received. So I, I think the fact that Congress, what we're seeing in a lot of areas now, though, but is true. I think we're seeing this. But when Congress flipped from Democratic, uh, Republican leadership to Democratic leadership, I think many Republicans felt that that was a somewhat liberating experience in that they no longer had to, be, to uh, uh, adhere so tightly to the uh, line of Republican leadership and could express their own views more freely. Yeah, and then they could look like they're doing bipartisan work. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought protection of health information privacy should be a rock-ribbed conservative concept. Yes, it absolutely is. And, you know, when I want to go back to what you were saying about that when you had done some speaking with the Republicans and they, they liked the idea of having state rights and not having the federal government preempt, it's interesting because they're doing the exact opposite with security breaches. They want to have a federal law that would preempt all the state laws with regard to security breach uh, notification. And that affects obviously, healthcare issues as well, because, you know, I don't know what percent of all of these security breaches were healthcare industry, um, but quite a bit of them. When you look at the chronology at privacyrights.org, you're going to see a huge amount that are uh, hospitals, healthcare agencies. And then I get calls even from doctors who tell me that this has happened, but they don't have to disclose it in the public. Oh, absolutely. And that's why when you see things like uh, 25,000 complaints uh, uh, received by HHS for privacy violations, it's, it's remarkable that uh, there are that many because most people will never know that their privacy has been, their health privacy has been violated. Right. Um, and uh, so, so to have 25,000, over 25,000 complaints since the April 14th. Uh, 2003 compliance date of the the rule is is a pretty remarkable number given the fact that uh, finding they, out about these breaches, they don't even know about it, right? Yeah, they don't even know about it, and uh, so it's um, yeah. We, and we definitely need. We I mean, it, it's just unconscionable to me to think that a company would know that they had a privacy breach, particularly a health information privacy breach, and not disclose it to the individuals who's privacy was compromised. And California, thank goodness, led the charge in the nation in 2002 in adopting the data breach disclosure. 2003, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now I under, I last count I saw there were 33 states that had adopted similar uh, legislation, and it was because these legislators see what everyone else sees, uh, that you know, uh, a, an electronic information system breach in almost, almost every other day in the newspaper. Exactly. And the reason we're hearing about it is because of the California statute that, that led the way, as you're talking about. Exactly. And, and you know, I think one of, the, one of the huge issues here is that the 
reason, you know, you're saying it seems unconscionable that a company or a healthcare agency would not want to tell their patients or their consumers, customers, clients, whatever, that there was a security breach so that they could protect themselves. But they don't want to do it. And they and don't want to do it. You know, and, and it's embarrassing for them to have to do it. And it's costly. Even the security breach notification, if you're a large company, it's costly to notify. It's costly to provide uh, what the what the standard lately has been is a year of credit monitoring. All that is costly. Well, it, it can get costly no matter what. Uh, the biggest cost, well, I, I, I can just relate the experience of, I won't name the, uh, the health system, but there was a major health system in the, in the, in the Northwest that, had a, uh, that lost 365,000 <clears throat> patient records when I uh, computer was uh, stolen out of a car. Right. And to date, according to the reports, they have spent $9 million uh, trying to address the breaches. And they are fending off a class action lawsuit by the patients. They are trying to defend themselves against a, uh, a state attorney general investigation. But the, the, one of the uh, uh, officials with that organization said, Sure, the money, the cost was terrible, he said. But the cost to our repu- reputation was incalculable. Exactly, exactly. And, and that that is what companies are coming to realize. And I was just in a, um, I was just in what they call a stakeholders meeting a couple weeks ago uh, in the House of Representatives, where congressional staff called in everybody who's interested in the issue and and uh, to hear what they had to say. And there are all all sorts of IT vendors in there and. And uh, healthcare providers who have typically been in favor of eliminating the right to privacy. And what I was astonished by was that these companies, almost every one of them, are coming to the conclusion that they have got to recognize the patient's right to privacy. They have got to inform people of breaches because otherwise, no one will trust them. Well, you know, we had the little carrot and the stick in our in our security breach law, and that basically said that if you encrypt the data and it is acquired by a third party, then there is no duty to disclose. Right. So that has been somewhat of a, of a carrot to get companies to start getting better technology to encrypt their laptops, to encrypt the uh, sensitive data that's on their computers. And I think what it has done is it's really pushed for for companies to invest in technology to protect that data that they didn't do before. They would right. protect their intellectual property, but they wouldn't protect the sensitive data of their customers and their and their patients. Right, and Senator Leahy has just introduced a bill, uh, a data uh, security bill, uh, S-495, which picks up that concept and incorporates it into the bill. The bill has, it, it's not a perfect bill, but right. at least it does require notice of of most breaches. Yeah, and the only thing that we said is, you know, we wanted to go back and say that we wanted to improve the law and say that if the encryption, if if the data breach was by a person who hold the key to the encryption, then that would not exempt... Oh, good point. <laughs> you know good. that was that was the one thing we left out of the first time mm-hmm. is that if if the uh, you know if the fraudster or whoever he is the the criminal who does acquire these without authorization um, is an insider, then you know that that threat is still there, obviously because they have the key to encrypt. But well, want, you know one of the things yeah. I, I say, and uh, every time I talk to folks, I give testimony on the Hill or, or talk to folks in Congress. I've, I've worked on this privacy issue now for probably fifteen years. And I, I always say, you know, the longer I work on it, the simpler it gets. <laughs> uh, it's when you realize that the entire health delivery system depends upon a single transaction, and that is your willingness as a patient to disclose the most sensitive information about yourself to your practitioner. If that doesn't happen, the healthcare delivery system doesn't work. We don't have a health IT system. We can't do research. We can't fight yes. fraud and abuse. We can't do quality uh, improvement. We can't do anything unless exactly. you are willing to make that completely uh, voluntary disclosure. And if we don't protect your right to privacy, you won't make it. 
Yes, and I know, and, and, and we've had on, um, who is the woman who's for the, the MD with the psychological? Oh, uh, Dr. Deborah Peel. Yes, she was on our show. She is fantastic. And, and, and the, I mean, it is so sensitive when you're talking about psychiatric issues. I mean, well, she's terrific because she can also answer, you know, what happens when you wake up in Peoria or you don't wake up in Peoria. You're unconscious in Peoria and you want someone to, you know, the emergency room to help you or you're in, you know, you're in New Orleans and Katrina just hit and, you know, don't you want your medical records available? And, and she used to work not only as a psychiatrist, but as she managed an emergency room. And she says, A, number, uh, in, in a uh, hurricane, the first thing that goes down is the electricity. So you're not going to have health records. Forget it. Uh, yes. Electronic health records. Number two, when you're in an emergency room somewhere, or a patient comes in unconscious in an emergency room, as a doctor, you don't want their medical record. What you want to know is just what you need to stabilize that patient. You want to know, do they have an allergy? What's their blood type? Uh, uh, you know, are they on any medications? And You're going to do your own tests anyway. I mean, I, I just I fainted a, a few weeks ago from some food poisoning, believe it or not, in the middle of a restaurant. And um, I ended up with the paramedics at the hospital, and they didn't get my health records. They, they did every test on me that they could, my blood test, my EKG, and I was fine. And then, obviously, it was this, this food that I ate. But, um, yeah, they didn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I, what's interesting about this whole IT debate is that <clears throat> Congress would have no interest in it at all unless it saved money. I mean, just, I mean, there can be a lot of discussion about improvement, quality improvement and all that, but, but I asked a question once at a, a congressional briefing. I said, what would happen if we did a lot of research on health care quality and we determined that in order to improve quality, we need to spend a lot more money? Would you be willing to do that? The answer was, no way. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's only interest in quality improvement as long as it somehow saves money, and there's only interest in health IT as long as it saves money. And that's not real clear. I mean, there was the early RAND study that said, oh, you could save $70 billion a year or, or something. But but that was not based on hard data. It wasn't based on anybody who had actually done it. Uh, and now we know that the latest estimates show that in order to wire the country, we would have to spend $280 billion over 10 years. And you wouldn't begin to even see what the, the benefits of health IT, you know, even, even those that folks say are out there. You wouldn't even be able to see those until you had 90% of the country wired. So you won't see that probably until year 8 or 9 uh, and then there's $17 billion in expenses every year thereafter. Mm. Uh, now, you've got to save a lot of money to offset that cost. And the, and the early studies that I see coming in that, uh, where doctor groups, physician groups, are saying that, that you know, health IT is not so bad actually are costing more money because the first one of the first studies I, I saw come in, I had to laugh at because the doctor group was saying, great news, we recovered the cost of our health IT system because we found that we were not providing as much service or as many services as we should be providing, so we actually increased the procedures we were doing. <laughs> That's not exactly what Congress had in mind. No. So these doctors recouped the cost of the IT system by providing more services, oh, and that's that was not a, that's not Congress's interest at all. Uh, their interest is seeing can we figure out a way by uh, compiling uh, information electronically to provide fewer services. That's what they want to do. Right. But but this is all not to say that I don't want to give the impression that that health IT is necessarily a bad thing or necessarily inconsistent with health information or the protection right. of the rights the safeguards. Yeah, the safeguards have to be built you in. You can actually, I, th- I think, you can actually do a, a pretty good job and perhaps an even better job of protecting the patient's right to privacy if you design the system correctly. For example, you could give, you could have a patient have an electronic record that has an electronic black box with additional encryption keys where really sensitive information can be placed. And then the patient can put vital signs, allergies, blood type into an electronic record that is available to an emergency room technician if it were needed. 
but that while at the same time uh, protecting uh, having greater privacy protections to the remainder of the medical record so so it, it can be done if it's designed properly but this administration has no interest in that so far i hope they change but so far they have no interest at all in protecting the patient's right to privacy they don't even in hipaa hipaa doesn't even recognize the patient's right to privacy yeah. We're, I just want to introduce you again we're, because we have a few minutes left. And we're talking with James Piles, who is an attorney in Washington, D.C., who is an expert on uh, health information privacy. And we're talking about what needs to happen. Jim, when you testify in Congress, and I know I have uh, testified several times in Congress with regard to identity theft, and one of the real helpful ways for Congress to understand the real danger here is to bring in victims of these. Are, are they I mean, I know personally uh, that I had on my show uh, Eric Drew, who was a victim of, of health care identity theft. And you may have seen him on TV. He was on Montel with me. He has been on a lot of shows. He's actually been on my show as well. He's a friend of mine now. But he um, was literally dying of, of uh, leukemia. And while he was uh, in the care of this hospital, one of the health techs decided he was dying anyway, so he'll take his identity, and that's what he did. And that w- he, they actually prosecuted the case under HIPAA, believe it or not. But are, there, are, are we getting victims to come in and tell these horror stories of what's happening because of, of the access by anybody and everybody? Well, it, it's, been, it's been relatively hard to, to get victims because they don't, I mean, the whole point is they didn't want their privacy violated, and the last thing they want to do is to... Well, I can tell you some names of people, and when we go offline, um, <laughs> you give me a call. And if you want some victims to testify, um, I can give you some victims that would be to testify. And, and I could, you know, when I've testified, I've actually told stories and had some of those victims come with me or at least let me use their name in giving these stories because that is the only way it seems to really hit home. And then the media picks up on it and tells these stories, and then it becomes alive for these Congress people sure. to say, my God, look what's happening on. Well, you know, you were saying earlier, uh, we were saying how unconscionable it is that that private entities don't disclose these uh, data breaches and privacy breaches. But right near the uh, end of the last congressional session, the, uh, the House Committee on Government Reform uh, forced the Department of Health and Human Services to report to them on whether they had had any identity theft in HHS. And it turns out, yes, they had. And they hadn't bothered to tell anybody about it. So even HHS is not doing it. Right. And I think that there are plenty, I think we can get you plenty of real live victims who would be willing to come out and say what has happened um, and it, or at least have other people talk about what has happened to them and tell their story so that Congress can really know about this. Lloyd is that would giving, be very helpful. Yeah, Lloyd is giving us a, a couple minutes left, and, and I really wanted to have time to go over the privacy pr- principles, but I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, Jim, in the, in the few minutes that we have left, would you tell us what we can do and where my audience can find out ways that they can be helpful to you and to Congress? Well, certainly the, the most important thing is to, um, to contact your, your member of Congress and tell them that privacy matters to you, health information privacy matters, and that you expect uh, that your right to privacy, health information privacy, will be uh, recognized, and you expect that it will be protected. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly not a victimless crime and, uh, when your privacy is violated, but it's very hard to um, uh, even get uh, an organization to stop committing privacy violations and certainly even harder to get uh, some damages or recovery. But we now have members of Congress who, who really want to uh, get privacy uh, protections in place, including, and I think the most important of all is, merely recognizing that patients have a right to privacy. That should be recognized in federal law, and patients should have an opportunity to, to exercise that right. And if you, just, if you didn't remember anything more than that, just I want my right to privacy recognized and I want to be able to ex- exercise it, just tell your congressman that. They need to hear from you. And I, I talked with many of the California congressmen, and uh, many of them, and most of them, are quite strong uh, on, this, on the health information privacy issue. Yes, and and we're going to give your website. It's 
ppsv.com, right? That's correct. And people can go to your website. And do you have a lot, and I, I haven't looked specifically because you sent me a lot of things, but do you have a lot of information that people can look at on, on privacy issues? We do have some, but I tell you, the person, the person who has a lot more than I do even is uh, Dr. Deborah Peel, yeah, is patient that, privacy rights. She is that patientprivacyrights.org? Is that what it is? I yeah. think it is. Yeah. yeah, and you can look at Deborah Peel. And also go to the GAO.gov and look at what they're saying and on healthcare privacy. And maybe even to go to the HHS website to make them some complaints. So Lloyd is telling me we don't have time. You're going to have to come back again next year and tell us what's <laughs> going on. And if you want to know some victims, you write me an email and we will talk soon. And you've been terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. And you stay warm out there, all right? Okay, thank you so okay, much. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to James C. Piles, who is an attorney with Powers Piles Sutter in Verville in Washington, D.C. He's a lobbyist, and also he is a terrific privacy advocate for patient privacy and healthcare privacy. We'd like you to come and join us every week on Wednesday night from join us next week on KUCI.org and 88.9 FM in Irvine, and also visit our website. Write us an email, listen to our podcast, subscribe to our podcast. Podcast and listen to previous interviews and see who's coming up of our VIP guests at www.kuci.org. Privacy piracy. Thank you for listening and thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.